Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. This podcast has a simple mission, to have discussions that reveal something important about life and how best to live it. My guests range from the biggest sporting names on the planet through to neuroscientists, philosophers, psychologists and world-renowned thinkers. We talk about things like how to skillfully relate to uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, the power of acceptance and psychological flexibility, how to get your circadian rhythms in sync to feel your best, right through to the nature of reality. These conversations and the bite-sized episodes have the power to change your life. This week's guest is Professor Shane O'Mara, a neuroscientist and author of the fantastic book In Praise of Walking. Now, you may have heard the phrase, sitting is the new smoking, And while we might not have to go that far, in this episode, Shane explains in a compelling way why it is so important to get our step count up as we've become way too sedentary as a species, which is having a profound impact on our mental and physical well-being. While walking helps our muscles and posture, it's also been shown to aid creativity, protect and repair our internal organs, aid digestion, lower stress levels, and can even turn back the aging of our brains. Shane. Hello, how are you? <laughs> oh, I'm all right, how are you? I'm great, thank you for having me here. <laughs> no, thank you very much for uh, coming on. You're a very bright man, let's be honest. Uh, you are the Professor of Experimental Brain Research at Trinity College Dublin. I am indeed. <laughs> so basically, what you don't know about the brain, frankly, isn't worth knowing. 
Uh, maybe. <laughs> Thank you for being so kind. To what degree is that true? Uh, oh, we know very little about the brain. <laughs> yeah, but as a species, but within the species, within the species, I more I know more than most people, but I don't know enough. I would like to know an awful lot more. Sure, uh, so and I'm modest about what I know. I'm mostly I wrong in what that. I think about the brain. We know very little, like you yeah. say, about most things. I yeah. guess. But you have published what over 110 peer-reviewed papers. It's about 140 now. Up to 140. Yeah. You need to update your website. Yeah, yeah um, I do, actually. <laughs> um, so looking at things like the brain systems on things like memory, decision-making, motivation, anxiety. Very interesting. So, I mean, we are talking about walking, but I'd be mad not to pick your brain about brains. So just give us a couple of nuggets about, for example, how we can best get our brains to work for us. Get regular sleep is the number one thing you can do. And humans are really, really bad. If your pet dog wants to sleep, you know what it does. It goes over in the corner and it lies down and it wakes up when it needs to. Uh, humans are the only species that top and tail their sleep voluntarily. And if you want to improve your mental health and physical health, get a good night's sleep. You should not wake up feeling tired. Really? Yeah. Uh, sleep acts to reset just about every organ system in the body. Uh, it offers the brain an opportunity to sluice out all the junk and gunk that builds up during the course of the day. And that This has only been discovered in literally the last five years mm. that we have this uh, amazing waste removal system in the brain. Uh, it's it's a what's called a paravascular system, which is only turned on when you're asleep. Um, and it removes all that stuff. And n missing a night's sleep is the equivalent of experiencing a mild concussion. Really? Yeah. So here's a question for you then. I'm not firing on all cylinders. I went to LA a week ago. So yeah. would that be because of all the jet lag yeah, and the lack of sleep? And state? all of those things. So I'm yeah. still feeling the effects. You're still feeling that. the effects. And you see, this is one of the things that, you know, you're feeling it palpably, but actually. Uh, there are lots of things go wrong when you don't sleep properly. Wound healing, for example, if you've got a, a cut or something, that proceeds more slowly. You're more likely to die when you're fatigued. Why? Because you're more likely to fall asleep at the wheel of your car and crash. Uh, you're more likely to make a bad decision walking across the road because you can't judge the speed of the car that's coming so quickly. Or, you, you know, on your bicycle, you might misjudge distance. All those kinds of things. And you're more likely to get colds and flus and disease when you're not sleeping properly. So get a good night's sleep every <laughs> night. And people who say they only get by in four hours sleep, they will die young yeah. and they will perhaps die of dementia or <laughs> something unpleasant like that. I tell you what, we struggled to... Last thing on sleep, we are going to talk about walking. That's that's why we're here. But we want more sleep. I think we all do. But, but it can be increasingly hard to get sleep. You hear about sleep hygiene and all this basic stuff. One tip for better sleep. Uh, don't bring screens to your bedroom. Yeah. Um, second tip, which people aren't aware of, uh, is turn the temperature of your room down a little. And if you're finding it hard to get it to sleep, go and have a bath. Because one of the things, that you, or a shower, one of the things that your body does is reset your core body temperature. And as you prepare to sleep, your temperature drops. So don't be overheated going to bed and what you need to do is dump some heat and that will help you sleep okay so what you're in bed you can't nod off get up after 20 minutes have a quick shower have a nice shower really? yeah yeah absolutely it brings uh, the blood to the the, the surface uh, and you will dump uh, heat from your body core and that will help you okay there's some sleep nuggets there yeah let's move on to walking shall we yeah right listen so walking an olympic sport 
a very entertaining Olympic yes, sport. Yes, hilarious to look at. He doesn't like those hip wigglers. Yeah, and leg locking into all the... <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's the person who has to keep a beady eye on making sure that their feet are always touching the floor. Now, that's a tough yeah. job. Yeah. But as well as being an Olympic sport and an entertaining one at that, it's also something most of us do a lot, but we should do more. We think of what makes humans special. One of the reasons is, for example, um, reversible thumbs. Or is it reversible? Opposable thumbs. Opposable thumbs. thumbs. Reversible uh, thumbs is... Yeah. Uh... <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't work so well. <laughs> Perhaps our ability to think, to plan into the future, to, to ruminate on the past. But actually, you say the key most important thing for the way that we've dominated the planet is our ability to walk. Yeah, it's our singular and very peculiar adaptation. No other species walks like we do and no other species undergoes the transition we do. The one that we make without even thinking about it, even knowing it at about the age of 12 months or so. Uh, we're in a stable position on all fours. We crawl around. We make interesting undulating moves of our, uh, along the ground as we're doing this, strengthening our spine and strengthening our shoulders, all of those kinds of things. And at about 12 months, 10 months sometimes, 14 months sometimes, uh, we start to make this transition where we pull ourselves up, we flop back down again, we totter forward it's a moment of great joy in families when the child makes the, the, the first step. And that's the first step to autonomy as individuals. And it changes our world irreversibly because now we see the world differently. Our head is aloft um, and our hands are free. Um, and why is that important? Well, now we can carry things. We can point to things. We can do a whole range of things we couldn't do before, including gesture. Um you know, sign language is, is uh, a, a common form of language among people who've got language impairment. Um, and uh, we could not gesture, uh, or sorry, we could not engage in sign language if we couldn't gesture. And we can't gesture if we're down on all fours. So that's kids, right? But also you, you speak about the fact that we've taken over the planet and uh, superiority, if you like, to other species, down to our ability to walk. Yeah. So, you know, we moved out of Africa, whatever, you know, they're, they're probably in multiple waves, uh, starting at around 120,000 or 100,000 years ago. Um, and we conquered the planet on foot. Uh, we walked out of Africa. We didn't come out of Africa on mechanised vehicles. Uh, we hadn't invented them. Uh, but we came out in small groups. Uh, we came out in small tribes. We came out in small family groups. And we populated the planet and walked everywhere. We island hopped, obviously, to boats. We did amazing things like cross uh, uh, the Siberian steppes and uh, cross the Bering Straits and ended up in Canada and went all the way down to uh, the, the, the Southern Americas. We made it all the way to uh, to Australia, to New Zealand. Um, and this is something no other species has done. And we've done it on foot. So our ability to walk has literally has conquered it, the planet. It was the precondition for our being able to conquer the planet. Because when we're walking, we can carry children, we can carry weapons, we can carry food, we can walk from places uh, that are dangerous to places of refuge, we can find places to sleep, we can do all sorts of things on foot that we couldn't do if we were on, on four feet because uh, if you look at chimpanzees, for example, the range over which a chimp can, can go is actually quite limited. Um, its ability to forage is limited 
in all sorts of ways that it's not limited where we're concerned. Uh, so we have all sorts of advantages given to us because we are bipedal. Bipedal, a.k.a. ability. Uh, yeah, to walk on two legs. It's, it's almost an underappreciated ability that we have to walk, and it's clearly being neglected currently. Just a couple of things about the mechanics of it. Very interesting in your book talking about the sort of sensor that we have to keep us in the right uh, yeah. angle. So you know, uh, you know, we're looking, we're, we're on a, a, a semi-sports podcast here. So <laughs> I like that semi-sport. Yeah. Right. So they're, it's addressing some other issues as well. Just watch figure skaters or uh, watch uh, people running. Watch a rugby player carrying a ball. Now, if you can imagine a line between the corner of the eye and uh, the auditory canal, and what you'll see is that despite them making really strange and odd deformations of the strides that they make of their gait. They keep that line approximately parallel with the ground. And the first thing you do when you deviate from that line is to bring it back to being parallel with the ground. And this is because we have an always-on measurement system inside our head which responds to the movement that we are engaging in in our bodies. And its job is to stabilise the position of the head when we're moving. And what we don't appreciate really, I think, is uh, we think of walking as happening from our feet up. It's not actually the case. Our bodies are hung from our heads as far as our brain is concerned. And we walk from the head down. Uh, The command to move happens in the brain. It doesn't happen in the feet. So is this the vestibular system? This is the vestibular system. And you gave a very helpful tip for anyone who might get stranded in an avalanche, which I found interesting. It's, it's quite common that if people get stuck in avalanches, they don't know which way's up and yeah, which way's down yeah. because their brain can't. So what, what happens very commonly is we calibrate uh, upright using visual inputs. We look at the world. But when, you're, when you've got a condition of a whiteout, it's very hard to tell where you are. And if you're upside down in snow, you don't have contact against the ground with your feet using what's called the kinesthetic system to tell you where the solid surface is. And people regularly mistake uh, upside down for right side up. So gravity doesn't care. So if you don't know where your position is, just drool out your mouth, uh, literally. And if the spit runs down the side of your cheek, well, then you know the ground is to the right of you. If it runs directly down your chin, you know it's below you, so you should be digging up. But if it runs into your nose, you know you're the wrong way around. Even if it doesn't feel like that, you have to except that gravity is, exists yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't care what you're feeling at that moment. And it's apparently quite a, a common thing for people yes, to dig absolutely. in, the, right, in yeah. the wrong direction. Yeah, and people do get disoriented. You know, if, you, if you, you find yourself being disoriented, you know, for example, if you're out hill walking and a cloud descends on the mountain very suddenly uh, and you've got conditions of whiteout, that happens. And, it's, you know, you have contact with a solid substrate, but still knowing which direction to walk and how, the speed you can walk in is actually terribly compromised when your visual field is is whited out like that. And that shows, I guess, what you're talking about in terms of um, top down. And this made me think, because you talk as well about sort of motion sickness and optic flow, which I'll let you sort of elaborate. But it made me think about something that I always notice, which is when I'm getting on an escalator, an escalator that isn't moving, for some reason, it's like my body judders. Yeah. And, and I've always wondered why that was. And, and it made me think when I was reading all this, it made me think, OK, you'll be able to explain what's going yeah, on. So there. what happens there is uh, your previous experience largely of escalators is that they're moving and your body or your brain predicts movement. 
and movement doesn't happen. But you've been readied for movement and then movement doesn't happen. Even it, though I'm sort of telling it, myself, yeah, it's not moving. Yeah, no, it's no, the it, same it, experience. It's, it's got nothing time. to do with what you tell yourself. The calibration is something that happens independent of consciousness. Um, so even though you're expecting it, it doesn't matter. You're, uh, before you've actually got onto the thing, the vestibular system and the visual system have come into register. They've said there will be an experience of movement. This will go away if your experience is only of non-walking escalators. (laughs) But this tells us something as well, that the visual system and the vestibular system talk to each other and input to one affects the input to the other. So they're plastic. They can learn. Hmm. It's interesting. We're less in control of things than we realise. And another another occurrence that I notice that I find very interesting and that you refer to is in crowds and our ability to sort of bob and weave through yeah. crowds. And I'll always be walking and I'm always sort of impressed with my ability to drop a shoulder at just yeah, the right absolutely. moment. absolutely. And yeah. it sort of happens unconsciously. Yeah. yeah. And we, again, you know, what we, have, I think, have had this model of the brain as a kind of a passive receiver of, of input from the outside world that it does something with. But actually, the brain is is very active and what it's doing is predicting what's going to happen. And you know this. And then when something goes wrong, when your prediction is confounded, that's a disaster because you were expecting to drop your shoulder and the other person dropped their shoulder, but at the wrong moment. And you ended up making contact with each other. And that's a terrible social faux pas in crowds because, of course, we all carry around our little invisible uh, bubble around us (laughs) when we're walking. That's certainly true. You say our brains have... GPS systems? Yes, yeah. There's, a, In fact, this is common to uh, virtually all species. You have to know where your nest is, the place that you go home to. Uh, you must have a, a range-finding ability, uh, get away from where you are to go to where it is that you can gather food or work or whatever it happens to be. And you must find your way back again. And this implies that uh, somewhere in the brain, uh, you must have something like a GPS that tells you where you are. And in fact, we now know the components of the system. One piece of it, uh, for which John O'Keefe at UCL won the the Nobel Prize, is centred in a part of the brain called the hippocampal formation. And this uh, has cells that tell you where you are in the world. They respond to your position. So they're called place cells. Uh, Another part of of it uh, is called the head direction system. And this functions like a compass. These cells fire when you're body and and in particular your head is oriented in particular directions and then a last component of it uh, which is particularly important is the grid cell system which acts as a metric for space so gps consists of place direction and distance Mm. and uh, the the you know so you can now start to think about how can i build a robot that will get around in the world well these this is what evolution is engineered but also it turns out that these are very tell us very interesting things about how the human brain works um, if you have damage to the GPS system, what happens? Well, you lose your orientation in space. You don't know where you are. And uh, unhappily, the hippocampus, is, uh, uh, where the, the place cells are located, is the first site in the brain to be attacked by Alzheimer's disease. And uh, a, a clinical test for Alzheimer's is an orientation test. When you come to the memory clinic, can you retrace your steps from the front door of the hospital to wherever the clinic is? Uh, Can you remember what day it is? 
because the space system is also concerned with time, is your orientation, not just in space, but also your orientation in time. Do you know where you are? Do you know how to get home again? And people with Alzheimer's disease and, and other similar dementias lose this kind of or- orientation in time and space. And of course, a common test for concussion is to ask uh, the sports person, um, what day is it? How many fingers am I holding up? Where are you? You know, basic mm. tests of how you are oriented in time and space. So for those of us who are really rubbish at directions, is nobody's that, is that really rubbish. OK, trust me, <laughs> I'm not great. So actually, one of the amazing things uh, is that we actually have two systems. We have a GPS system, which locates us in three dimensional space. But we also have a route system. Um, uh, so we're, we're very good at memorizing particular routes as well. Go 100 metres until you meet the T-junction. Turn left at the T, uh, walk another 100 metres, turn right, and it's on the left. And we can learn uh, those kinds of of, uh, uh, routes well, but we typically have to be instructed in them by others, whereas the GPS system picks up information about our three-dimensional world on the fly. Uh, But what you need to do, uh, (laughs) and you'll be shocked at this recommendation, is play lots of three-dimensional shoot-em-up games. Uh, Really? Yeah, because these games draw on all sorts of aspects of the GPS system uh, without you being aware of it. You have to get away from the thing that wants to kill you. You have to find safe places of refuge. You have to navigate dark spaces. Uh, You may have to hunt something. You know, there's all sorts of three-dimensional things going on. And uh, several papers have now shown that, uh, uh, at least in some cases, people who have, shall we call it... uh, uh, deficits uh, in uh, uh, three-dimensional wayfinding improve after a simple course of, of playing uh, these games. I wasn't expecting you to come on or indeed anyone to come on and recommend a shoot 'em up but there we go. That's a first for sure. Let's talk about the health benefits as well as the importance of walkable cities, which I found very interesting. Again, having just come from LA, which is... Not walkable, not walkable at all. No, it's it felt almost prison-esque because it's so, you're so dependent on cars yeah. there. And yet people gather on Venice Beach where they can walk. Of course, yeah. But it, it made me realise, you know, why I gravitate towards European cities, for example, that where you can just walk and walk and walk and walk. And that is all really I want in many ways from a city and some nice things to look at. So let's have a quick word then about that. You've got a plan for it, E-A-S-E. Yeah, so ease is the, the mnemonic that I offer. Uh, our cities should be easy to walk in for everybody and um, they, they should be accessible to everybody. And in, in this, I'm including people who've got mobility impairments and people who've got visual impairments, which make life difficult for them. And our cities should be safe and our cities should be enjoyable. Um, and what I'd really like to see... Uh, it's it's starting to happen. Uh, there are movements like the Conscious Cities movement, uh, the Smart Cities movement, where people are thinking hard or harder than they have done about looking at the city from the point of view of the individual who occupies it, rather than looking at we pedestrians walking around as units that have to be regulated in favour of car flow. Uh, you know, uh, uh, and, and to use an example that. Uh, uh, I, I hope we'll hit home a little. When when you look at ratings of, of attractions in cities, uh, here in London, I did this for a, a, a talk I was doing yesterday, the, the top 20 rated attractions are places that people can freely congregate together. Um, there are places uh, like Covent Garden, there are no cars present. The uh, 
the elephant and castle does not figure there uh, on this. The the Westway uh, A40 doesn't figure on this. People don't go to cities in order to look at uh, the motorways around those cities unless they're traffic engineers. But if you're going to a city, you're going to a city uh, where there are destination spaces for people to hang out together to do things together socially. A recommendation that you have is for cities to become increasingly walkable. Make a city walkable. You will intensify economic activity within that city. Uh, We know this with certainty. Every time you pedestrianise properly shopping precincts, the the shops on those precincts become more valuable and people spend more money in them because they can hang around in them because the shops become destinations and the streets become destinations. They're not thoroughfares. And walkable cities are increasingly happier and healthier and cities. All as well. of the social connectedness goes up, the sense of enemy and all of those other things uh, goes down, um, and uh, the kind of random encounters that you can make uh, meeting people go up because you have places of intersection in walkable cities that you don't have when you're hidden in a car. Right. Let's talk about the health benefits. So Hippocrates, one of the most outstanding figures in the history of medicine, the father of medicine, as he's known by many, came out with a quote, didn't he, that walking is the best medicine. Now, we're very much a sedentary bunch, aren't we? Dodgy hips myself from sitting down too much, weak, sleepy glutes. Um, And you say... Inactivity means less muscle volume, less muscle strength. But interestingly as well, it means our brains start to wither. Yeah, of course. And we have bodies that are built for movement and we have bodies that profit from and get back from movement. Um, So to give you a simple example, we now know, for example, that uh, if you're engaging in lots of walking, uh, the kind of inflammatory factors in the bloodstream drop down when you do lots of walking and molecules produced in muscle leak into the brain and facilitate resilience in your brain. So there's one that goes by the the uh, acronym SMVEGF, which stands for Skeletal Myofiber Vascular Endothelial Growth Factor. Right. And, and when you unpack that, uh, all it really refers to is a molecule that helps uh, the vasculature, in other words, the blood network in your brain, to grow to support the activity of brain cells. Um, and uh, we know also that walking causes, or an act- movement generally, causes all sorts of other positive changes within the brain and body. You've, your blood pressure changes, your metabolism steps up, steps up, your heart rate changes, lots and lots of other things go on. You said on. the guts as well, it helps yeah. the guts. Yeah, so there are some remarkable studies showing that actually uh, uh, the passage of food is facilitated um, when people engage of lots of walking. So rather than taking, um, you know, your constipation pill or whatever it happens to be, <laughs> you might find that actually going for a good walk is a much better and uh, more secure route to getting enduring relief. Are we doing much less walking now than we used to do? Yes, absolutely. You know, um, the, uh, in this city, for example, uh, 120 years ago, the average workman walked between 8 and 10 miles a day every day, uh, whereas now people drive. Uh, if you look at people who are living uh, kind of ancestral lifestyles, hunter-gatherers, uh, males typically walk between 15 and 17 miles a day, five or six days a week, and females typically walk 13 to 15 miles a day, again, five or six days a week. Um, and what you see in those populations is that they have heart health uh, equivalents that are absolutely remarkable. So uh, there's a, a, a tribe in South America, in the South American jungle, the, the Samani, and the average 80-year-old Samani has the heart health 
of a 50-year-old American. Uh, It's really, really quite remarkable. And do you Uh, put that almost solely down to They engage in low-level activity all day long. Uh, They live in the forest and they're continually moving. They don't spend much time sitting around. uh, And what else is it? They don't smoke. um, So smoking isn't contributing to it. They have diet. Not sugar. No, they have very little by way of processed food. They have honey. Um, as a sweetener they use uh, squashed fruits as sweeteners they certainly eat meat and they have a a diet uh, consisting largely of unprocessed food so it's all of those kinds of things but we hear obviously about the processed food the smoking regularly but but it's the walking that we don't necessarily we don't hear hear about the walking no Uh, the reality is that you know when we look at activity and its relationship to obesity uh, we have two competing tendencies in every human. We have this ability to keep moving for very, very long periods of time, principally evolved to allow us to harvest food. Uh, And we also are lazy in the specific sense of wanting to conserve energy. And these two things compete with each other. And the second one is winning in our modern world. Well, it's increasingly easy to be lazy. Of course. You know, we're having a a sitting down interview here. (laughs) Uh, If we're hungry, we'll be able to just pop out and get food. We solved the food sourcing problem in the modern world. What we haven't done is engineer our, our workspaces, our home spaces, our, our shared urban spaces to encourage us to walk more without thinking about it. And that's the key thing. This should be effortless. It, it should be something that Simani don't wake up every morning and go, oh, I have to walk 15 miles today. They get up, they get their stuff together and they go off and hunt, they go food gathering and it's just what they do. And uh, we do not have a modern society designed around the idea that we should be walking. There are five factors of personality. Ocean, as it's referred to. Ocean. So if you can explain what they are, but it's interesting where you also explain how a lack of activity, our sedentary lifestyle has a negative effect. So what, three of them, was it? Yeah, yeah. So um, there's a a fair degree of consensus now that we we, uh, have, everyone has a personality that reflects five different factors. So this is referred to as uh, ocean, as a, a simple way of remembering it, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion. Uh, I've forgotten what A stands for. Isn't that terrible? And <laughs> neuroticism. Um, and uh, what you see in if if you track people over the and you give them repeated personality tests, um, and uh, you track changes in the personality, and you look at the type of lifestyle the person has, what you find is that they uh, become less open to experience over time. Um, they uh, become less extroverted over time, even if they were not particularly extroverted to begin with. And they also become more neurotic uh, over time. So you have a triad of of, uh, uh, unpleasant symptoms that go together as the result of having a sedentary lifestyle. And uh, the contrary case is also true. uh, If you track people who are active, uh, what you find is that they are much less likely to succumb to many of the diseases that go with a sedentary lifestyle and they show many fewer, if none, of the changes that happen as a result of being sedentary. In this day and age as well, lots of people are suffering with things like anxiety, with depression. Rates appear to be 
soaring to to some degree. Yeah, no, they are. They, like the World Health Organization has suggested that for non-communicable diseases, depression is going to be the number one condition that we're going to have to deal with uh, by the mid twenty uh, twenties. Um, and it's clearly the case that depre- rates of depression in the Western world or in the developed world have been rising over the past 30 years. And it's not a problem to do with overdiagnosis. It's rising uh, in part uh, as a result, perhaps, of urbanisation. But uh, what we can say is that um, if you look at levels of activity in individuals and you track the amount of walking that they do, for every level of walking that you engage in above the most sedentary, you are less likely to succumb to depression. So it may well be the case that uh, there's a kind of a, a sedentary component to the the onset of depression. Now, there may be w- many other things as well. There may be an inflammatory component. There, there's a life stress component. You know, there's lots of different things going on there. But um, at least one of them is a modifiable factor, and that's the amount of movement that we engage in. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. To what degree then is big walks or long periods of walking a possible effective way to actually reduce the symptoms around anxiety and depression? Um, So it doesn't appear from the few studies that have been done that walking has much effect on anxiety levels. Uh, Is that right? That, that appears to be the case. Now, I, I, I don't want to say that absolutely, uh, but um, at least a couple of studies showed that that may be the case. But it, it seems to be very, very clear. There's a, a, a really important paper in the Journal of the American Psychiatric Association about a year or two ago looking at a large population of Australians who've been tracked over uh, a, a, about a 10 to 15 year period. And... Rates of depression fall and the likelihood of succumbing to depression fall uh, for every group above the most inactive. So the, the more active you are. And there are all sorts of reasons why this might be the case. So one possibility is this. Um, some people argue, and I think reasonably, that um, depression can happen because of what's called, with this wonderful word, the inflammasome. You, you have a, a greater 
amount of inflammatory factors circulating in the blood and you have greater degree of inflammation in joints and things like this. And Ed Bullmore, for example, at, at Cambridge University has argued in a recent book, The Inflamed Brain, that at least some types of major depressive disorder arise as a result of uh, inflammation. Um, it also turns out to be the case, remarkably, that if you engage in lots and lots of walking, inflammatory factors in the blood fall and fall really dramatically. Um, so uh, in the first chapter of the book, I, I deal with a deep case study of, of a single uh, person who's tracked uh, walking the Via Alpina over a 1200 kilometre walk. And inflammatory factors that are, are pro-inflammatory factors that are known to be associated with depression, like interleukin-6, fall by about 75%. So it may be that in at least a fraction, uh, and we don't know that fraction of cases, engaging in lots of activity is a kind of an inoculant or a vaccine. Yeah. Uh, it, it reduces the risk dramatically. I'm slightly surprised about the anxiety that you mentioned because you do talk about the fact that cortisol, which is that the fight the stress or flight hormone. Thing, the stress yeah. hormone that gets us going in the morning that needs to duck at night, that walking can have a serious um, you know, influence on particularly yeah. that. Uh, the yeah, way so it comes it's, at night. it's worth talking about anxiety for a moment. So um, uh, humans don't experience anxiety as kind of a thing that's out there that happens to them. Um, there's a, a distinction made between state and trait anxiety. Uh, and there are some people who suffer from high levels of trait anxiety because this is the way they're built. Um, they they engage in excessive rumination about things. They worry about things. They anticipate things going wrong that won't uh, necessarily go wrong. Um, and they have a pattern of doing this throughout their lives. And this is known as trait anxiety. And it doesn't look like walking can touch that. Um, state anxiety where you... Uh, where things have happened to you that cause you trouble, uh, which you you have to worry about. Walking perhaps can help with those because it might help with uh, creative problem solving or, or something like that. You keep talking about like low levels of activity. Now, lots of people these days, myself included, are gym goers and that kind of thing. We're obviously talking about walking and you're talking about the benefits specifically of walking and long walks. So what's the difference? Yeah, so... Uh, one of the things we do persistently as as humans is overestimate the efficacy of going to the gym and pounding out an hour on the uh, the treadmill or whatever in the evening when we've engaged in very low levels of activity during the course of the day. And paradoxically, it's often found that people who go to the gym for an hour uh, and do that religiously uh, put on weight. And there's a reason for this. Um, they, they engage in very little activity during the course of the day. They go and engage in a lot of activity for a short period of time. And you get what's called exercise-induced inactivity. And basically your body is saying, you've gone and hunted, you've got the wildebeest, you've killed it, you're sitting down, you can eat. And uh, your metabolic rate actually drops. Uh, and my point about walking really comes down to this, that engaging in lots of activity across the course of the day is probably more consequential for your metabolism in terms of regulating the rate of your metabolism than engaging in a small bit infrequently. We're built for regular uh, rhythmic movement and sitting around all day and then engaging in a serious bout of it and then going back and vegging out on the couch is, is, is not speaking to how we're, we evolved as humans. So what about the people who don't get much choice about sitting around all day? We're 
here in the glorious BBC buildings right now, and there are people glued yeah. to their computer screens left, right, and centre. Yeah, and, and this is a major uh, problem of ergonomic design. Um, there are very, very nice walking desk solutions available now. Uh, there's no reason why meetings uh, should be sitting meetings. Uh, we could have standing meetings. We can have walking meetings. There's no reason other than history why we're uh, sitting uh, there's a convenience because the microphones are placed on the table in front of us. But if they were on articulated arms hanging out of the ceiling, yeah. we could stand and talk. Uh, you know, engineers who think about these things are not thinking about uh, the kind of health issue. They're thinking about the, the comfort issue and all sorts of other things. So we do have a, an issue which is greater than the individual. And we can't blame the individual for this. It's to do with the structure around us. You know, you come in here to work in the BBC, you've had no choice in the layout of of this room. It's a lovely room, but... Uh, it's it, well, it's, it's, it, it does the <laughs> so job. Yeah, it does the room. It does the job well. Um, but it is the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not... Nobody's ever come along and said to you, well, if we hung out all the microphones on arms, would you like to stand? Um, that question has never been posed to you. And yeah. it probably never occurred to you to think about it until I said it. No, absolutely. Um, so, so, what, so what's the advice then for people who, like, like the ones we can see through the window, who are sat at desk? Like, what can you do to mitigate the effects? I, I, well, so there, there are two different issues here. So the, the first is, you know, let's step back and look at the larger problem. When a design brief is given to an architect or an engineer, part of the design brief has to be the public health issue of mobility and looking after people at work ensuring that there's greater levels of activity. So on the one side, we have to look at the system that has generated the the kind of lives that we live. The other side of it has to be uh, there is some personal responsibility here. You know, you can time as on my computer, for example, I have an alarm that goes off every 25 minutes and I get up and I go for a walk. Really? Uh, Yeah. Every Um, 25 minutes? Yeah. And is that that's now a habit? It's a habit. I don't even think about it. It goes off and I just think, yeah, just get up and (laughs) walk around the office. How long do you walk for? Uh, Five minutes. um, And I do that Every twenty five minutes, really, and then yeah. you'll come back and, and sit then, back and, and sit, carry on the work. Yeah, and yeah. does that you find that? Helps oh, it with makes your a huge difference. Yeah, and uh, you're more effective when you you work in short bursts uh, and you take a bit of movement between uh, the, uh, the the short bursts of, of activity. Can I ask? Do you work in an office? Yes, I do. You do, because I, I could just imagine it, like, we all get these sort of thoughts into our head about what what is the correct decorum or whatever, you know. And I can imagine yeah. people actually thinking, "Yeah, people won't approve of me getting up and going for a walk." Luckily, I have minutes. my I have my own office. Well, they, I was about to say you're in charge. <laughs> yeah, yes, but, um, so but do you know what I mean, like culturally. Yeah, yeah, no, I know, but you know, again, the the instruction has to come from the top. There's a uh, this is okay. It's perfectly acceptable for people to walk around. If I have to take a phone call, for example, um, I always take it standing and I walk around taking the call. How long has this been habit then for you? Is this something you've you've had to work into your life? Or? Um, I, I, I guess it's a little bit of both. Um, I realised a, a, a number of years ago that sitting was really having a terrible effect on my back. Um, and I used to just stand up and stretch. Um, yeah. And uh, when I started to consider these issues more deeply for this book, I, I beca- just became much more systematic about it because um, yeah, yeah. these are factors I can control easily. Um, and uh, I have a standing desk in my office as well yeah. uh, when I'm for working on documents that I want to read. Yeah. And I change my posture regularly because we're not designed, yeah. as I said, to just slump in one position all day long. It's going to be bad for you. 
So I've got gammy hips, bit of a dodgy back. Behind the studios, there's this uh, where we normally have guests. Anyway, I, I nipped in there to do some hip stretches, and my boss came in and sort of gave me a very, or one of my bosses came in and gave me a very bizarre look. You yeah, know, join it, in is what you should say. <laughs> say join on. me. This will be good this for you as well. This is not a bad thing yeah. that I'm doing. This will this help actually... my productivity. Yeah. yeah, and like we have this bizarre model of presenteeism that you're only working uh, when you're, you're sat at your when desk, desk glued yeah, your glued, yeah, and actually, you know, um, when you've to engage in problem solving, you know, you, uh, uh, you know, when you're thinking something through, getting up and walking around uh, is actually a much better way for a lot of problems than actually sitting down, uh, feeling very frustrated. Yeah, yeah. You, you g- explain how it actually can help creativity. Yeah, yeah. So just yeah, just explain. yeah. So a, a, a simple torture that uh, lab or psychologists will do when they're ex- when they're getting you to engage in kind of creative access, they'll bring you to the lab, they'll sit you at a table and they'll present you a succession of objects, common objects. And they'll ask you, uh, they'll give you two minutes and they'll say, object number one, here's a cup. Uh, How many uses can you think for a cup other than it being a cup? And what you find is that people are vary in their ability to come up with numbers of uses, but let's say it's 10 uses. And what you find is people who engage in knowledge work and creative work are better uh, at generating alternative uses than people who don't. It's, it's a reliable pre- predictor of, of the kind of profession that you're in. But here's the rub. Uh, you're doing it sitting at the desk. Now, if I get you to walk for five or eight minutes prior to uh, engaging in the alternative uses task and then get you to do it, instead of coming up with eight or 10 uses, you might come up with 16 or 18 or 20. Really? Yeah, you'll generate on average twice as many. And uh, in the original experiment that looked at this uh, is hilarious. What they did was they uh, got people to walk around and then they were worried about other extraneous factors. And being experimental psychologists, they wanted to titrate the amount of walking. So they put people on treadmills and then to equate conditions, they had people sitting down doing these tasks on chairs placed on treadmills. And the effect is exactly the same. Um, the movement is the thing. And uh, we know from uh, uh, many of the great writers and philosophers and and mathematicians and others that uh, getting out for a walk is their very best way of engaging in, in problem solving. Stephen King, the novelist, walks lots and does this all the time. Uh, Bertrand Russell, the great philosopher, uh, when he would, when he had to write, and he wrote prolifically, uh, would organise his thoughts on a on a piece of paper, go out for a walk for an hour, and to the jealousy of his friends, would produce a flawless piece of prose uh, on whatever topic he was addressing over the next couple of hours. Immanuel Kant, the great philo- German philosopher, it was said that you could set the clock in Regensburg by the regularity of his walking. He would hit the town square at three p.m. He would be back at his home at five and he would write for two or three hours perfectly and many writers will tell you and I'm, I'm one of them when I when I have problems with writing uh, stop what you're doing um, gather your thoughts on a piece of paper go for a walk and then come back and you'll find that you can knock it down very very well so if you want those eureka moments getting out and walking is key yeah. and the science about exactly why that is you talk about the active mode and the default mode in the brain which is very interesting about sort of ruminating and switching it's, it's between switching it. between exactly that's it, the, that's, that's that's the, the key but in a nutshell it really does help creativity, creativity yeah okay so we've got that creativity we've got the uh, longevity stuff like that just quickly as well you, you talk about the importance though of getting in uh, a walking in nature yeah so humans evolved not 
in an urban landscape, although we now, the majority of the planet, live in, in towns and cities, we actually evolved in a, 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 a natural landscape, uh, a variable landscape of trees, of, of rocks, of river courses, all sorts of other things. And uh, people regularly uh, will write, uh, and, you know, you read nature writing and all the rest of it, people will say how restorative the experience of nature is. And it turns out that that's not just a word, it actually does mean something. Um, and the regular reliable experience and exposure to nature does give people a, fe- a feeling of restoration. And uh, you don't need that much of it. Um, about two hours a week of seeing nature is enough. And this means that, you know, in our cities, not alone should we, should we care about pedestrians, we should also care about greening our, our cities. There should be trees, uh, we you know, at the parks. the parks, all of those kinds of things. At the edges of footpaths, we should have little ecosystems for bees and uh, other insects. And uh, we should just build into the, the uh, experience of urban living uh, a kind of a, a natural fabric. And the market has told us that this is true because when you look, in, for example, in this city, uh, where are the expensive houses? They are in the leafy suburbs, you know, and people speak of the leafy suburbs with contempt. But, you know, there, there are places in London that are profoundly expensive because they are leafy. And if you want to get somewhere cheap to live, you, you don't live in a leafy suburb. You live yeah. in, uh, 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 shall we say, some of the, yeah. the, the less... Uh, <laughs> Dense uh, urban de- areas. Yeah, yeah. The, the slightly more gritty yeah. areas. It's interesting actually when you do walk into those green areas it's almost a, sort of a, a physical sense that yeah. you get yeah. that, that you, you feel. Well it is it is actually a physical sense you know you're detecting things that you don't detect in your normal urban life you're seeing uh, uh, trees moving in the wind you're hearing leaves rustle you're seeing birds moving around uh, you know I was in Green Park this morning and there was wildlife there, uh, lots and lots of squirrels running around looking at us as if, uh, <laughs> you know, why aren't you yeah. giving us food? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that kind of experience is is really, really important. And I think London has done a, a great job on having these amazing uh, parks. Dublin, where I live, has, has done the same. We have really, really wonderful parks. But um, there are parts of both of our cities uh, where... Life is tough for people and uh, exposure to nature is, is, is not what you would like it to be. And if you want to make life a bit better, plant trees, plant hedging, you know, do things to, to bring some of the rural into the, into the urban. And you actually say that exposure to nature has an effect on health akin to things like the provision of clean water, electricity, hospitals. Yeah, th- so there's a, there's a whole load of uh, really interesting uh Uh, work going on now on the effect of exposure to nature and uh, gritty urban environments uh, for example there's there's an over-representation of mental health problems in those kinds of environments there's an over-representation of physical health problems there's an uh, over-representation of of communicable as well as non-communicable diseases they're obesogenic um, there are all sorts of things going on in them and uh, regular reliable exposure to nature seems to mitigate many of those things. Very interesting. So, okay. Um, something that keeps cropping in my head, though, is is as someone who enjoys running, despite my sort of gammy hips, right, how do you compare the benefits of walking to the benefits of going for, say, a daily jog? Yeah, so... Um, the, that's a tough question to answer in any, any kind of definitive way. So, um, you know... It, it, 
and you need to think about the why you're running and what the the purpose of running is. If you want to get the maximum cardiac benefit from running, what you want to do is high intensity interval training, which is really hard and tough going. You you run at full tilt for two minutes and then you have a two minute break and then you run at full tilt again, um, uh, and that that you know that will give you uh, a lift in cardiac function like. Uh, uh, Exponential. Just nothing else that yeah. you can do. Um, jogging, it looks like, doesn't burn that much by way of, of calories and doesn't make that much for by way of metabolic change because people often jog at a rate which is actually quite slow and not imposing any cardiac strain. Uh, whereas if you walk, let's say, you know, we were talking about uh, leafy suburbs, you know, walk up Hampstead Hill at six kilometers an hour and keep that kind of speed going for 40 minutes you'll get a hell of a kick uh, from that so I, I think you need to look at the speed you're going at you need to look at the surface that you're running on uh, you need to look at a whole lot of different things uh, where you're comparing running and walking um, you know fell runners will be slim lithe people uh, who, who can keep running for long distances but the other side of it is that uh, if you look at million steps per million steps run per mi- versus per million steps walked um, the injury rate rises with the, the numbers of steps that you run whereas it doesn't rise with the number of steps that you walk it's approximately flat yeah. um, so you may find with running especially if you're running in on unstable surfaces you know where there are sinkholes or there are stones or whatever that you fall and hurt yourself uh, you twist your ankle you break your leg or whatever uh, you may not you may have a you know, you might suffer nothing or you might get splinting or, yeah. you know. But the risk is higher. The risk is higher in running. So let's just say... I'm not saying you shouldn't run, by no, the way. No, 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 <laughs> I'm not going to be giving it up. Don't worry about that. But um, <laughs> so let's say someone does adopt your approach. Let's say of getting up every 25 minutes, um, going for a little gander around the office, going for longer walks. How much of a difference to someone's brain function, to their creativity, to their overall health are we talking here? I, I think we're talking quite substantial uh, amounts of difference, in all honesty. you know, we Really we, underestimated amounts? I, I think we don't know ourselves. I, we underestimate ourselves just how good walking will make us feel. So give you a simple experiment. Um, if uh, you take a group of people uh, and you say you're going to take them on a walk and you ask them how they're feeling now uh, and you get them to give you a number on a, a one to five scale, they might say, I'm feeling two out of five. Uh, and then you ask them to tell you how they'll feel after a 15 minute walk with you they might say two out of five and then you take them for the 15 minute walk and you get them to give you the number uh, what they'll do is say four out of five uh, we underestimate how good a walk will make us feel and in an interesting twist even this works even in the case of people who dread walking where you get people who say they will feel worse after a walk they feel better uh, we actually consistently misperceive how good we will feel as the result of a good walk. And, you know, getting out there, getting the wind on your face, pounding the pavement, all of those kinds of things actually activates all sorts of things in your body that would have been quiescent and silent uh, had you not put the strain on your body. You mentioned already so lower blood pressure, increased creativity, improve your heart health. All of those things. Um, And uh, we know, for example, that in the case of type 2 diabetes, that uh, one way you can control your diabetes is just to get physically fit, get your weight down and 
get a lot of walking in. A couple of last bits then. There's that 10,000 steps that that's, uh, I've read a few places that you should be aiming for, but I've also read has been plucked out of thin air. Yeah. So, so what should people be looking to, or how many steps should people be looking a notch? Yeah, so uh, I always say 5,000 more than you're currently doing. Um, <laughs> and most people aren't doing very much. We know, for example, uh, from mobile phone, smartphone data, that uh, people in Japan walk the most on the planet. The the typical adult does about 5,000 steps a day or 5,200 steps a day. And people in Saudi Arabia walk the least, about 3,000 steps a day. Uh, And then uh, in Western Europe, in the UK, uh, we walk typically around about 4,000 steps a day. The US, a bit less than that. Um, But we are actually built to walk really considerable amounts. We can walk 10 uh, 15 kilometres a day, day in, day out, without any trouble at all. Um, and our bodies will adapt to that very, very quickly. So my advice always is do 5,000 more than you're currently doing. You're probably only doing about 4,000 steps a day. If you can get it up to 9,500, 10,000 steps a day and you're distributing that through the day and some of that is at a really good clip. So of the order of about 5.8 or 6.2 kilometres an hour and you keep that up for 40 minutes and you do that a couple of times a week, you really will feel the benefit of it. And just to bring the conversation full circle, we started out by talking about sleep. So walking consistently at a decent clip, as you say, throughout the day... Will help you sleep better, (laughs) believe it or not. Bingo, bingo. There we go. What a beautiful way to wrap it up. Shane, I very much enjoyed uh, your book. I actually did, and this is the God's honest truth, I got a pedometer on my phone and I've been logging exactly the number of steps uh, since let, I read let, it. Let's compare. Because All we're right, guys, we, we, we have All to right. compete with okay, each other. Fine. Now, my phone's been off, so we'll let, let's just do a quick comparison. It's actually quite alarming. I noticed the uh, the big one that worried me was the drop-off on a Sunday. Oh, that's terrible. That's the day you should be getting more in. I know, I know. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm aiming for it now, right? We're just waiting for the... Uh, so I've done 10,083 oh, steps gosh, today. Such a show off, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank right. you. And, and yesterday I did a, a mere 14,000. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> the day before I read the book, I had done 1,185 steps. Oh, I know. Oh. I, that, in fact, that was probably the day I was reading the book. Oh. It was your fault. <laughs> Right, the very next day, 9,280. Uh, yeah, yeah. The yeah. day after that, 9,252. Day after that, 9,939. 9,011. Uh, and then this weekend, I haven't done much, but I did go to the gym. But what you're saying is that actually that that, that gym, it won't... Supplement. It does, it, do, so gym, it, do gym yeah. as well as, as, well as regular yeah, walks yeah, throughout the day. Yeah. So okay. gym plus. Gym plus. And yeah. to every 25 minutes, get up. Yeah. There we go. Uh, Shane, absolute pleasure talking to you. I'm walking more, and I hope whoever is listening to this will consider walking more too. Thanks very much for coming. Thank on you Dope so much. Scott. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Life Lessons podcast. I would be delighted to hear your thoughts, your ideas, your guest suggestions, your questions. Just get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com. And if you could share this episode with someone you know or on social media, I would be very grateful as it does really help people to find this podcast. That's it for now. I will be back with a bite-sized episode this Friday and another full-length episode next week. Until then, goodbye. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.